All right, Hebrews two. I had skipped this passage before because, much like the concept of Jesus as high priest, which I'm told uh, last week y'all talked a little bit about, appears in multiple chapters. It will come up again in Hebrews five and Hebrews eight. Um, there are multiple warnings in the book of Hebrews, and I want to talk about the warnings more generally this morning. And then a little bit about the specific warning at the beginning of chapter two, but that will prepare you in your own reading of the book of Hebrews for dealing with and interpreting the warnings that are going to show up in multiple other chapters. So let me read Hebrews two, one through five, sorry, one through four, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into that. It says, therefore, In light of everything that happened in chapter one, where we make the case that Christ is superior to everything else, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So we've got our warning here. We've also got in this particular passage a couple of other little rabbit trails that I want to go on. I want to talk about one of my favorite words in Christianity which is orthokresis. This is one of my favorite words because um, the word represents an understanding that came to me as I was becoming reformed and as I was starting to study the scriptures more carefully and more deeply. I grew up in a Christian home, never knew a day when I didn't know the love of God, always believed the Bible was the perfect word of God, but How important the Bible was and how to understand it and how to use it was something that came later to me in life. And there is within within some circles of Christianity, there is a false dichotomy between two words that you probably know. I wouldn't expect you to know that one except for me, but I would expect you to know orthodoxy and maybe even orthopraxis Um, when we say doxology is from that, is word. Orthodoxy is believing the right words, believing the right things that are said about God. And there is a, within Christianity, there are a false dichotomy between the right word, the right doctrine crowd, and orthopraxis. Praxis is just like it sounds in Greek. It's practice, right action, right practice, right activity. So if orthodoxy is about knowing the right thing, then orthopraxis is doing the right thing. And that false dichotomy will will create people who argue that right belief, right doctrine is more important than anything else, even to the exclusion of other things. So within the Reformed community, we call this the cage Reformed stage. 
This is the people who want to argue over the precise meaning and definition of every single term. If you do not speak with theological accuracy, like a dart hitting the center of the target, you will be corrected because the most important thing about being a Christian is that you never say anything that could possibly be interpreted even 1% not accurate. And that is the orthodoxy only crowd. And we've all met those folks. Some of us in this room have been those folks. But again, we're not saying right belief is not important, but there is an overemphasis that can say it is so important regardless of what you practice. What you say, what you believe, what you can write in a dissertation is what matters most about Christianity. And so this is what I would call the have-not-love crowd. This is what the New Testament refers to as if you speak in tongues of angels, if you have every single word of your doctrine correct and you say it in the most precise way humanly possible and you have not love, what does scripture say about your doctrine? It's clanging. It makes horrible noises in God's ears. It's offensive to him. He wants to get away from it. But others will argue, and this is much more common in liberal churches, mainline churches than in our circles, but it is now, I see it more and more creeping in to otherwise evangelical churches, is this point of view that it's only what we do that matters. Let's not get hung up on doctrine. Let's not get hung up on words. Who cares if we didn't say this as precisely as possible? Who cares if the way we're explaining the Trinity is actually a 1,600-year-old heresy that people were burned at the stake for? It doesn't matter. What matters is, do you love people? Do you do nice things? Do you help the poor? Do you... And that's the orthopraxy crowd. That's the only what we do matters. And what I would tell you is, as we look at the book of Hebrews, and we think about it as an epistle, a letter, whether it was a sermon letter or not, it's an epistle, and it fits in with all the other epistles in the New Testament, in that it refuses to give in to that dichotomy. The the epistles would have been written very differently if either one of those were the exclusive concern of the New Testament authors. They would have been either entirely doctrinal, spending as many words as possible on the page, explaining every single detail of every single doctrine, and then this giant list of affirmations and denials. You've seen those before where it'll say, we believe that, and then it'll say something very clear, and we do not believe that, and then it'll tell you all the things that it doesn't mean to say that. That's how, if that's all that mattered, that's how the epistles would have been written. Paul would have written letters. John, Peter would have written letters that just said, we do believe ABC. We do not believe XYZ, period. Now your doctrine's perfect. Go and be Christians. That's not how they're written at all. But the epistles are also not written simply as a, a, a rule, like an NFL rule book where you can go to chapter 10, subsection four, and it tells you this one sentence, exactly what you do in that type of situation, forgetting who cares about why, who cares about why we would do certain things. All that matters is what we do. Every word of every epistle would be entirely practical, telling us how to live and what to do without ever worrying about why. Uh, or how God is, or who God is. The other problem with the right doctrine crowd, just for the record, is they really struggle to accept uh, how many questions about God are resolved with mystery. Now, 
you can take that too far. You can say, well, we can't know anything about God because he's God and his mind is not ours. But that's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says a billion things about God that we can actually know. So we're not allowed to just use the word mystery or the concept of mystery as a get out of jail free card for I want to be lazy and don't want to understand things. There's a whole lot we can understand about the body and the blood. Scripture tells us a lot about that. How this piece of bread actually becomes by faith the physical body of Christ, when I, tell, I have no idea. I have no idea. Like you hit a point with all of these, free will and God's sovereignty. I can explain a ton about how that can be logically reconciled. And then you hit this inflection point where you've explained a bunch and you've gotten to the, yeah, but exactly how does God apply that in every situation? I don't know. And when Job asked that question, God did not seem pleased, right? So with many of these doctrines, God gives us a bunch we can understand, but then we hit a point where we go no further with, at least with our minds, the way they are now and perhaps forever, um, we go no further. And it's important for us against the doxy crowd to be okay with that, to be able to say, we understand as truth, everything that God has clearly revealed as truth. And we understand as mystery, those things which God has not revealed. We're okay. There's some tension that we have to live with. Scripture does not elevate either one of these above the other. What scripture does in the much less common word is it teaches these two not exhaustively. Scripture does not teach every single answer to every single question directly. Scripture does not teach every single needed behavior in every single situation directly. Scripture teaches everything you need to know for every possible situation by teaching you right judgment, which is what orthokresis is. And you see this all over the place in Scripture. If you were to have a, a coworker or a neighbor who was an utter fool in the biblical sense of the term, denies the existence of God, is combative with you about the existence of God, refuses to listen to reason, refuses to engage in fruitful dialogue. And you said, I need to find out from the Bible, should I continue to have conversation with this fool or should I not? Well, then you would just go to the Bible and the Bible would give you a very simple answer. Answer a fool according to his folly. Okay, well, then I have to continue conversation with this person and give answer to their folly. Of course, then what would happen if you read the next verse of Scripture? Do not answer a fool according to his folly, right? So how do I know whether this fool is casting pearls before swine or whether this fool is one that I continue to engage in dialogue There's no one verse in the Bible you're going to go to that's going to tell you what to do, but the teaching of the Bible is going to equip you to have what's called right judgment. The ability to understand, to we use the word discern, but it's not that magical. It's to think through logically with the brain in your head and the stuff that Scripture teaches, what do I do in this situation? You can think about a lot of other things. The... Examples of moral issues where the Bible clearly says this sin is wrong. Murder is wrong. 
Well, what does that mean for family planning in the 21st century? There's a whole bunch of technologies available to us that the Bible never spoke to. So is the Bible just silent on those? No. The Bible gives us instruction about doctrine, right words, and about practice, and in doing so trains us to have right judgment so that we can look at situations and make decisions and make determinations. This is what God says. So the way this comes across in the epistles then is the word therefore. The word therefore matters a lot in the New Testament. The word therefore is the transition word between the orthodoxy and examples of the orthopraxis. Paul will write sometimes several chapters, sometimes just several verses. This is the way things are. Here is the truth. Therefore, do this or don't do this. But he's giving you both. He's not just writing, this is the way you should behave. He's saying, here's what's true about reality. And because that's true about reality, here's what you should do in a situation like this. And the reason why that's so important is because there's going to be a ton of situations in your life that are not exactly like the therefore that he gives. And so we have to have the ability to look back at what came before the therefore and say, oh, uh, the author of Hebrews was telling these Jews who had come out of Judaism and had embraced the reality of who Jesus Christ is, they'd seen all these truths that Paul says about Christ and proving that he is God. And then he says, therefore, do not turn away from that. I'm not tempted to go back to Judaism. I'm not tempted to uh, deny in that particular way that Christ is the Messiah. So then I guess the therefore doesn't apply to me. Well, not at all. I've got to use right judgment to say, what are the types of situations where I reject the argument that Paul or that the author of Hebrews makes in chapter one about Christ that in my life caused me to go astray, that in my life caused me to have other lords, to turn away from Christ, to reject him? Or what are the ways when we discuss with modern people, with our friends, with our coworkers, with our neighbors, they're probably not turning back to Judaism, but they are rejecting the argument of Hebrews one about who Christ is. And so then chapter two becomes applicable. All these warnings become applicable as we think through what that means. So the therefore matters. The the orthocresis is is the missing link between the why, how reality is, and the what. What are we supposed to do? Does that make sense? You know, you don't. We don't have to use the the Greek words, but conceptually, and you've heard me say before, people who the orthodoxy only crowd are just obnoxious. They're just obnoxious. You don't want to be around them. You, they are not, they do not represent the faith well. They are the ones who get into debates about angels dancing on the heads of pins. They are the ones who nothing you ever say can possibly be precise enough for them. Don't confuse that crowd with people who believe scripture teaches truth and that we should have right doctrine and that words do matter. But you'll hear me say a lot when I teach. Here's a phrase. I'm going to say it. A, either in the Sunday school or the sermon today, I'm going to say, here's a phrase that we commonly hear in the church. If what people mean by that is, 
yada, 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 then that's okay. Not the phrase I would use, but that's okay. But if what they mean is this other thing, well, that's a problem because that's not what scripture teaches. That's very different than the crowd that just walks around beating people over the head about exactly how they say everything. That crowd is obnoxious. Um, But the orthopraxis crowd are the ones that will leave the faith first. Because you cannot go through life doing things that are not easy for no reason. Nobody can last. So if you try, if you do good works and you try to love your neighbor because you think it will earn you favor with God or because you think it will make your life easier and you'll never have any problems or substitute any possible reason for doing good works other than Christ calls me to do good works and it's part of walking with Christ. If you don't have that why, any other why, you walk away. They're too hard. They're too ineffective. Uh, Daphne's grandmother loves to use the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished, right? And it's true. If you do nice things for people in this world to be well-liked and get nice things in return, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. People take advantage of you. People don't care that you were nice to them. People don't care what sacrifices you made. People, apart from Christ, are selfish. And so any of these reasons that you do good things, other than the right reason, you won't last. So these people, you want to run off from the church, and these people will leave on their own. Because they won't have gotten what they signed up for. And so here in Hebrews, the author has explained to us that Christ is superior to the prophets and the angels. That Christ, with his message of salvation is a more true, more significant messenger than the human messengers, the prophets, or even the heavenly messengers, the angels. And then he says, therefore, because of that, now here's an example of something that you have to do or not do. And because you understand the superiority of Christ, therefore, do not fall away. And there are six warnings in the book of Hebrews that I mentioned. The first four, including this one, all immediately follow teaching about Christ's authority or Christ's qualifications. So the first time the the first four times the author of Hebrews warns us, it's in the context of here is who Christ is. And because Christ is that, therefore you be careful. Do not fall away. Do not turn your back on Christ. Uh, do not leave the faith. The final two have a different context that we'll look at when we get to those. But here the context is the superiority of Christ. And so what exactly does he say? He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That is the what we do. Because Christ is superior to everyone else, because his message is superior, we must pay even closer attention, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And so the argument here is pretty simple and pretty logical, which is it would be one thing to ignore or take lightly a message given by a sinful fallen human being. If the message is true, that's still a mistake But human beings say lots of things that are not true. And if a human being gives you a message and that message is true, you shouldn't walk away from it. That's 
bad. We'll call that level one bad, right? And what if a heavenly messenger came, an angel, and the angel delivered to you a message from God? And you were to reject or turn your back on that message. We'll call that level two bad. You really should not do that. If Gabriel shows up in all of his glory and you are immediately blinded by this and Gabriel gives you the word of the Lord, I would suggest to you that you take him seriously. And that, well, first I would suggest you go get checked out. But if we assume that Gabriel's really there, I would suggest that you take him seriously. But the author of the letter to the Hebrews argument is, you take lightly the message given by man, poor idea. Israel ignored the message of the Old Testament prophets throughout their entire history. And then you ignore the message given by a heavenly messenger, an angel. That's another level of offense. That's terrible. But this message, this message of salvation in Christ alone, was given by God himself. It was not given by one of equal authority with a prophet or one of equal authority with an angel, though they had authority and their messages were true. This is not to diminish them. But this is to say, if you ignored them and turned your back on them, and that was bad, and there were consequences for that choice, how much worse is it to turn your back on the message that God himself delivered directly to you. It was delivered by the man described in chapter 1, the Son of God, who is God himself. And so the author goes on to say, even the message delivered by the angels and the prophets was proven correct, and those who ignored it received punishment. So it's not like, well, you could ignore them because they're man, you could ignore them because they're angels and angels aren't God. No, no, no. Their message proved correct and there were consequences for ignoring their message. You see that all throughout Israel's history. The word spoken by angels, that phrase in English, the phrase in Greek very clearly refers to the law that God gave from Mount Sinai. Because in the Old Testament, uh, in Exodus 20, in Deuteronomy 5, in Acts 7, Galatians 3, all over the Bible it makes it clear that the in whatever way the law given to Moses was mediated through angels. So the angels, the law came through the angels to Moses is an argument that the Bible makes. Or not an argument, the Bible just says that's the way it is. So if Israel ignored that message... There were consequences and punishments. You find that all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Why do they lose battles? Why do they, why does famine come on their land? Why does all this bad stuff happen to Israel throughout their history? Because they turn their back on the law of God. That's the argument of the Old and New Testaments. And so if that bad stuff happens to people who ignore a message that comes literally through angels, what will happen to those who neglect the message that comes through the Son of God himself. Won't it be worse? You cannot ignore the message of Christ without dire consequences. And so he says, how could you possibly escape? How will we escape if we neglect such great salvation? Israel often escaped the full weight of God's wrath. God often 
relented against Israel. He chose them despite their unfaithfulness. He continued to always be their God despite their rebellion against him. And even when uh, we get to the New Testament and we think, well, that's when God rejected Israel and uh, went to the church model instead. No, no, no. That's not what he did at all. He, he, cl- he clarified, as he always had, what true Israel was, which are not genetic children of Abraham. They're people who share the faith of Abraham. And he grafted into Israel by faith those Gentiles who also believed. So God has this focus on Israel. He never rejects Israel, not national Israel like they think, not bloodline Israel like the Pharisees thought. True Israel, Israel by faith. God never rejected them. He throws wide open the doors of what it means to be Israel by faith. And if you reject that message, how will you escape? How will you escape the condemnation of God? And the author of Hebrews, the implicit answer there is you won't. No more than national Israel was able to escape God's condemnation against their disobedience. So they're thinking about going back to both Nation of Israel, religious Israel, and and the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. Jesus came and said two very different things. And if you neglect his message of salvation, this is me reading into the author of Hebrews because I think Hebrews was before AD 70, you will not be able to escape any more than that temple on the mount will escape. There is no escape from God's wrath against rejecting this message. And so the fact that this message was delivered by Christ, the son of God, that's plenty enough reason to accept it. He says the Lord Christ declared it and it was attested to us by those who heard. Now you'll remember from my first discussion about Hebrews, I think that's one of the verses that makes it very hard to accept that Paul could have written this letter because Paul did hear from Jesus and Paul in his other letters says that directly. The reason you can trust me is because I heard it from Jesus. Jesus himself appointed me to this role. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is it was declared to us by those who heard it. So just be a very awkward, again, it's not a, a, a open and shut case, but it would be an awkward way to say it. God himself has borne witness to the truthfulness of his message. So this is the last little rabbit trail I want to finish with. Look at the end of this passage. It says, verse 4, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and uh, I know some of y'all have backgrounds and experiences with that as well. But look carefully at what this author is saying. Is God bore witness to the truthfulness of Jesus' message to the apostles by giving signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. What was the purpose of wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to the people? The purpose of those gifts, signs, wonders, miracles, was to testify to the truthfulness of what Jesus and those who heard from Jesus were saying. This message was delivered by Christ, given by Christ, delivered by the apostles, And God himself bore witness to the truth of this message by sides and wonders. So these are all reasons why you shouldn't reject the message. But it also says something interesting for us, which is these gifts of the Holy Spirit, this concept of miraculous signs and wonders that we read about in the book of Acts particularly, but elsewhere in the New Testament as well. 
What was the purpose of those signs? We talk about signs and wonders. Signs. What was the purpose? Well, if you believe this verse, the purpose of signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts that were spread abroad were to confirm, to signify the truth, to give the significance to what was spoken. So is it any surprise They're not pointless displays of power. They're not magic shows just to impress people. They are God proving that the word of Jesus and that the word of the apostles is actually from God. So if the reason why the what we call the apostolic era, call it that first 30 or 60 years after Jesus, if you want to know why that era was filled with signs and wonders that we do not see today, we do not see casting out of demons. Does that mean God can't do it? No, it doesn't mean God can't do it, but he doesn't do it. Why does he choose not to do it? Why does God choose not to, you know, how many people would be more likely to come to our church and believe what I say if I could do some sort of magic fireworks out of my arms? Why does God not do those things today? Because he did them as a sign that what they were saying was true. To give the initial authority. And so why would it surprise us that these things, now that we have the Bible, we have 2,000 years of the word of God recorded and taught and judged by the church as this is the faith that's handed down from the apostles. Why would we need this now the same way it was needed when Jesus came and walked and said, 4,000 years of history, 4,000 years of your relationship with God is culminating in me. That's a tough message to swallow. Signs, wonders, miracles signify significance. So, um, Not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is, hey, if Jesus is really the one speaking, it's much worse to neglect Jesus' message than just the message of angels. And if the people who rejected the message of angels were punished, how much more will those be punished who reject the message of God? But we also have this tiny little window into the question of, why don't we see more signs and miracles today? Well, what was their purpose? Their purpose was to signify the truth of what was being delivered by Christ and by his apostles. 